Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 492 of the podcast and it is Friday the 5th of June 2020 in a world that is still mostly locked down, at least around here. (laughs) Life has not changed uh, in Bath, although it's definitely busier when we go for a walk and signs of life emerging, even though, let's face it, not much has actually changed. (laughs) Today I'm talking about creativity, artificial intelligence and time off with Max Frenzel. We discuss what AI can and can't do, why AI is a tool for exploration and some ideas for what we would like AI to do. And as ever, I mentioned discoverability and the book as metadata. And it's crazy how I still have to manually choose keywords and so on. But this is a really positive interview about how using AI tools might give us more time for human activity. And it's been a while since I did some futurist stuff, so that is coming up in the segment ahead of the interview. So in publishing news this week, the publishing industry has joined in with the Black Lives Matter movement with a number of initiatives. Now, I know it can be difficult to know how to help, but we can all at least look to our community. We are readers, we are writers, so we can buy and read books by authors of colour. And there are a lot of lists online you can start with going around at the moment, including one on bookshop.org, which also supports independent bookstores in the US links in the show notes. And uh, we can also use books to learn about the experience of others. I can personally recommend the audiobook Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race by Rennie Edo-Lodge, which Rennie herself narrates, and it is a black British history. And there are lots of other books being recommended. I've just downloaded, based on some of these lists, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, which is, I haven't read it yet, but the subtitle is, you know, hits a nerve, I think. So I hope that's useful to you as well. Publishers Weekly also posted a list of ways to support and so did the bookseller in the UK. Now, both of those articles are full of links and usually you can, they are behind paywalls, but you can usually get a couple of articles for free per month with these things. So I'm going to put all the links in the notes. Now, personally, I also want to acknowledge what is happening, particularly in the US, uh, but uh, I acknowledge my privilege and I stand with Black Lives Matter over there and also here in the UK and elsewhere in the world. I know here in the UK, things can be difficult for people of colour. And I don't uh, bring my family to the show too often, but my niece just had her fourth birthday. Her dad is Black British from uh, the Caribbean originally and I want her to grow up in a world where she can live and travel and work and be just as free as I am and as a four-year-old you know she just isn't aware of any of this stuff and I wish she could grow up not having to know about this stuff like really but she will I'm sure but also my sister-in-law Dr Isioma Okolo who is Nigerian and a medical doctor working in the NHS in Edinburgh Scotland where my obviously my brother lives as well and Issy is working on the front lines of the coronavirus and like many people of colour is at, is more at risk and she actually and I again I don't don't often bring my family in but she posted a video on YouTube last week so I figure it's on YouTube (laughs) so I'm going to share it about the situation which I'll link to in the show notes and their their new channel is called Dr Issy and Rod. My brother Rod is a, a photographer and his site's Rod Pen Photo. And uh, anyway you can go to the YouTube channel Dr Issy and Rod and I'll link in the show notes. So moving on to other things in publishing, Findaway Voices has officially launched Authors Direct. I've been in the uh, beta group for a while and have been using it for for a while doing giveaways. And there is now it is now open in the UK and EU countries as well as the US and Australia and Canada. And you have full control of your price and you can earn 85% royalty on every title you sell. You can have your own branded author storefront and manage that within your Findaway Voices uh, 
account. And it does mean, and I have downloaded the app here in the UK, you can now download the Authors Direct app, which you couldn't before. And uh, so I'm really excited about this. I'm doing some testing at the moment. There's obviously it's launched, just launched a few glitches as I record this, probably all over by the time this goes out. But basically, this will deal with direct sales of audio. So at the moment, I sell audio and I will continue to sell audio as download, downloadable MP3s because, of course, the countries that I've just mentioned are not the whole world and I like to sell to the whole world. But Find Your Way Voices has an app which is optimised for the listening experience. So this is just fantastic. They also handle all parts of the direct sales. So you don't have to deal with customer support, taxes, credit card fees, terms of service, international compliance, in-app delivery, etc. And the giveaway codes also work in other territories. You also can use audiobook promotions on BookBub and submit promos to Chirp, which is BookBub's audiobook promotion service. Now, uh, this is fantastic, but it is a paid service through Findaway. And if you only have like one audiobook, I would say it's going to be very hard to justify even a small outlay. But if you have a number of audiobooks and you are actively promoting them, then it may well be worth your while. So definitely check it out. And thanks to Antoine Bandile or Bandil, who emailed me very excited. In fact, I heard from Antoine before I heard from Finaway. <laughs> the Authors Direct is open to everyone. He says, it's so great. I signed up right away. The $20 per month should be no issue as long as you sell three typically priced audiobooks per month at minimum. So that's a great tip from Antoine there. So if you think you can sell three or over three, then it it will be worth the money. And Antoine is already promoting his shop on Twitter. I saw it. Pan-African inspired works from the motherland to the diaspora. And uh, fantastic looking shop, Antoine. And in fact, I went on there to go uh, buy one, which is what I'm testing with. at the moment with Findaway. Okay, so that um, one other thing in publishing news, I often recommend going to specific genre conferences that fit. If you are a thriller writer, you can join in Virtual Thriller Fest 2020. And I would say this is a great opportunity. Thriller Fest is probably one of the most expensive conferences to go to in the whole world because every year it's in the Grand Hyatt in Central <laughs> New York City. So it's a super expensive conference to go to. So it's a lot cheaper to do it online this year. And uh, you can just go to thrillerwriters.org and uh, check out Virtual Thriller Fest 2020. Links in the show notes. Some amazing sessions with top thriller writers. I am definitely doing it. Well, I'll, I'll be getting the recordings there often at the wrong time for me. But I certainly have been to have, I think I've been five times to Thriller Fest now. And I hope to be there in person in 2021. So this might be the only time ever that it goes virtual. I mean, fingers crossed. (laughs) Fingers crossed, touch wood, that another pandemic won't take us away. Uh, But yeah, this is definitely a good chance to join in with Thriller Fest. Right, the futurist segment that I haven't done for a while, but I I, I think the, the whole news cycle has just been crowded out for about six months now. It's been very difficult to sort of parse anything from the noise. But I've had a quick look at a few things and uh, brought these to you today. So first of all, good news. The US Patent and Trademark Office rejected two patents where, the I, where an IA system was listed as the inventor in a ruling on 29th of April 2020. So AI cannot be recognised as an inventor. And I think the danger for copyright here was if AI was recognised with a patent or a trademark, then that could be then a sort of thin end of the wedge in terms of copyright. Now, this may be appealed against and the Patents Office is seeing more and more submissions in the US, Europe, UK and beyond. So this is definitely an ongoing thing. It's very likely this will be appealed and at some point things will change. And I reported this back originally back in January 2020 when a court in Shenzhen in China ruled that an article written by AI could be granted copyright. And we talk about that in the interview today. In talking about the more writing-related news, uh, The Verge has reported that Microsoft laid off dozens of journalists and editorial workers at Microsoft News and MSN. The layoffs are part of a bigger push by Microsoft to rely on artificial intelligence to pick news and content, uh, presented on msn.com, inside the Edge browser and various news apps. 
Basically, these are human editors used to pick stories and Microsoft has been using AI to scan for content, process and filter it and suggest photos for human editors to pair it with. So interesting times indeed. Also, if if you've been following this segment for a while, you'll remember that last year, probably around this time last year, actually, I mentioned GPT-2 and I have talked about that is a natural language processing tool that's been trained on all of this data. And it was originally not released because it was too dangerous. But eventually, of course, they released it. And now GPT-3 has been released with a huge gigantic data set and they haven't there aren't any tools yet that are easy to play with but you can play with talktotransformer.com to play with text generation based off GPT-2 I'm very interested to see what's going to happen with GPT-3 uh, it'd be nice if they called it something easier to say <laughs> but at least uh, I guess it's um, kind of R2-D2-E isn't it just not as cute <laughs> Then, of course, in this interview, I talked to Max and we discussed the idea of AI as a creative tool. And there was an interesting thing just middle of May. Yes, Australia won the first AI Eurovision Song Contest, which is hilarious because, of course, Australia is not in Europe, (laughs) but they love the Eurovision Song Contest so much they're allowed to enter and they actually won. And machine learning was used to generate some elements of the songs, but humans arranged and performed the final tracks. AI was used to write the melody and lyrics with samples from Australian fauna to craft a synth instrument. And I I had a lesson and uh, to be honest, it was something like I would listen to in a spin class, you know, a sort of upbeat track, pretty catchy, nothing too exciting. But um, that is true of most... (laughs) pop music in general. So there you go. And also, I just wanted to cycle back on race, given that this is an AI and tech episode. And we talked uh, earlier about Black Lives Matter. And um, Max and I talk about the bias in the data that things are trained on. VentureBeat have collected resources on race and technology as the bias is a real issue. And that was some essential reading and research on race and technology. And again, links in the show notes. I also wanted to just mention some of the news stories that have been coming out in the pandemic because I before I've talked about how a sort of investment in robotics, automation, AI, 3D printing, all of this is going to accelerate. And there's been a lot of talk in the pandemic of this accelerating trends. And uh, certainly uh, you might if you if you have a look through some of the media images, the pictures of Spot the Dog by Boston Dynamics. And if you... <laughs> If you actually know what the dog by Boston Dynamics looks like, if you have it in your head right now, it doesn't look anything like a dog. <laughs> in fact, it's quite scary. But it has been seen encouraging social distancing in Singapore. There are also robot temperature checkers for Japanese school children. Self-driving cabs are being launched early in China so people don't have to get in cabs with other people. And AI technology is being used to check COVID-19 patient data records and x-rays and stuff like that. So I think if you keep an eye out for these types of news stories in the midst of other things, it can be very interesting to see where the trends are going. So we'll talk about lots of this in the interview with Max coming up. And I do want to stress that it is a very positive interview. And I know sometimes people message me and they say, why do you talk about this stuff? It's so scary. It's like, well, again, as I've said many times before, we want to surf the wave, not be drowned by it. And that's why I think it's important to know about. So in my personal update, I am working on my outline for the next arcane novel, Tree of Life. And yes, I am managing to restrain myself from just writing new words. And I'm working on the outline, but also the positioning. And a couple of you have emailed me with, with good ideas on outlining story. But to be honest, I'm very good on plot, I said, she says. <laughs> humbly. <laughs> but no, I'm, I think I'm pretty good on plot. I, you know, I write thrillers, plot is what I do. But what I am not so good at is positioning things and layering things before I start writing. And I often add that on in an edit, but I'm always looking to make my process better. And let's face it, we all can improve parts of our life and parts of our process. And this is what I'm doing. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with my current process. Uh, I just want to make it even better. And, uh, you know, as I've talked about moving into my next decade, I am, I can certainly recommend K.M. Wyland's Outlining Your Novel and also Take Off Your Pants by Libby Hawker, which is about moving from being a pantser to 
to being a plotter. And But it has a particularly good title. Both uh, Katie and Libby have been on the show. So yeah, I guess that's one of the questions for this week. How can you improve your process? And as you'll hear with Max, improving our rest process is also something I need to uh, to focus on. Also this week, as I record this on Friday the 5th of June, I got up this morning after my book bub yesterday, which is always a good time. So Math for Shadows made it into the top 50 on Amazon.com and made number one in bestseller lists for contemporary fantasy and fantasy action adventure in the UK, Australia and Canada and made it into the top three in the US. What is so crazy about the categories I chose is that in the US, even if you're in the top 50 on Amazon.com, you still can't get number, you can't knock JK Rowling off number one. (laughs) But I did knock JK Rowling off the top spot in Australia, which made my day. So I have a screenshot. Uh, I also have some screenshots in the US list alongside JK Rowling, George R.R. R. Martin and The Witcher for just a couple of hours. And it's always good to get these screen prints while you're... So I got my orange bestseller tags. I've got my screen prints with, with the big names of fantasy. And I'm still running some Facebook ads and uh, doing some other promotions. So I'll do a roundup of the promotion probably in two weeks time once I've processed all the data and seen what the sell-through is and all of that. And uh, Map of Shadows is still at special price, 99 cents, 99p or the equivalent in your country, in your currency, if you want to check it out. Probably I will be changing the price back at the in July 2020. And again, that's another another interesting decision is, I mean, part of the reason I got a BookBub is it's been at full price 4.99 for two years and has really good reviews. So discounting from 4.99 to 99 cents is always uh, a much better discount than having it permanently at 99 cents, for example. But these are all pricing fun things we have to weigh up. Uh, This week, I've also been recording my new mini course on your author business plan. And I mean, obviously, the main reason I've been doing this is because I'm doing my own business plan. (laughs) So I thought you might as well listen in. uh, And I share quite a lot of information and personal stuff. So I do hope you're going to find it interesting. It will be out next week. So middle of June, it will be 99 US dollars. So it's it's it is a mini course. And of course, if you're a patron or you've already bought mini courses or other courses from me before, you get a percentage off. So watch out for those emails next week. So thanks for your emails and tweets and comments this week. Megan O'Russell says, finally braving the 19-hour drive home, Florida to Pennsylvania in one day, spending the time catching up on the Creative Pen podcast and focusing on my creative plans. Hope you got home okay, Megan. Tara Coulter says, thank you very much, Tara says, the Creative Pen is my favourite podcast. Joanna and her podcast guests share so many helpful tips. Thank you so much. Thanks also to Terry Connellan, who emailed this week to say thank you for 10 years of inspiration and encouragement. And she also posted a 10 years of blogging lessons learned at quietwriting.com. And there were some great things in there. For example, no one, not everyone is watching or caring. (laughs) That is a hell of a truth, Terry. In fact, let's put it another way. Most people are not watching and most people don't care. <laughs> also, harness the value of howling into the wind. Yes, I howled into the wind. Some, in fact, somebody um, tweeted me this week and said, how many months was it from when you started to when you hit success? And I had to tweet back and say, hmm, well, it's been about 14 years and I still think I'm pretty much in obscurity. I mean, a few, a tiny, tiny, tiny corner of the internet. All you wonderful people know uh, I exist, but most people don't. (laughs) So, yeah, I I didn't mean to dash his hopes, but months, definitely not. More like over a decade. Also, Terry says, uh, our core themes are often surprisingly consistent. And I definitely relate to that as well. So yes, Terry at quietwriting.com. And one of my longest listeners, I imagine, uh, with over a decade 
of listening to the show. Fantastic. Andrew Bamer says, I've been diving into the podcast backlist back and enjoying it, but the bit about looking at your career via the Olympics and setting goals to hit by the 2020 Games feels odd in a modern context. Well, Andrew, you say that, but the 2020 Olympics, which will be held in 2021, apparently will still have all the branding of 2020 in. So just think of it as a bonus. You're going to get an extra year to achieve your goals. <laughs> and finally, Rosie Wyler Owen says, new to the podcast, but loving it. Thanks for all your great advice. Just finished the episode with Jay and Zach, and I'm inspired to quit my job and become a full-time author. Excellent. If you're new to the, new to the podcast, maybe listen to a few more episodes <laughs> before you jump in. <laughs> Right, so today's show is sponsored by Readsy, the curated marketplace where you can find vetted professionals to help with your book cover design, editing, marketing, website design, plus now they have translators, which is something many indie authors want as digital sales take off in new territories, particularly off the back of the pandemic. We're seeing growth in France and obviously French and Italy and Italian and Spanish and lots of places. So that is quite interesting. Plus, Reedsy have free training courses on everything from writing to publishing and book marketing. I personally recommend Reedsy because they vet the freelancers who list on the site. So you know you'll be working with somebody who is proven. I also know Ricardo and the team and many of you have met Ricardo at various author events over the years or in the various um, online conferences and know how friendly and helpful Ricardo and the team are. So if you need an editor, cover designer, help with marketing, help with your website, or if you're interested in the translation aspect or ghostwriting or many of the things they do, go along to thecreativepen.com forward slash readsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y, thecreativepen.com forward slash readsy. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating this show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. Thank you to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It continues to mean an incredible amount to me that you support the show. Thanks to all existing patrons and also new patrons. Dave Cohen, Sarah Beswick or Bezik, Melanie Glinsman, Ida Olson and Sasha Black, who also has the Rebel Author Podcast, if you want to check that out. So I really do appreciate the Patreon support and you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month or a couple of extra dollars and coffees a month if you want to support my my caffeine habit. which to be fair is pretty bad right now. And you'll also get the extra monthly Q&A audio and the backlist and tons more audio fun. So sign up now and you'll get all of that at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview with Max. Max Frenzel has a PhD in physics and is now an AI researcher on computational creativity in Japan, focusing on the creative applications of AI in art, design and music, as well as how AI will shape the future of work. He's also an author and his latest co-written book is Time Off, a practical guide to building your rest ethic and finding success without the stress. Welcome, Max. Thanks for having me. It's a huge pleasure to be on. I'm a huge fan of the show. Oh, thank you. And I'm very excited because you know this is a a favourite topic of mine. So first up, tell us a bit more about you and what led you into AI research around creativity. Yeah, that was actually kind of quite a convoluted way of getting into it. Um, I originally did my PhD in quantum physics. So I did that in London many years ago. Um, And during my PhD, well, I really liked research, but I realized I'm also very good at the entrepreneurial side. And also, I just want to do something more applied than just really abstract math, essentially. And after I finished my PhD, I thought, okay, what field can I go into where I can use my math skills and actually make some real progress on, well, real world problems? And AI seemed like the best choice at the time. And I think it still is for many people going that route. So... At that time, I joined a small startup in Tokyo, focusing on AI for business applications. Um, it was mainly focused on, I was doing mainly uh, natural language processing, focused on, for example, helping business analysts do a better job, find insights and news. But I was getting a bit tired and also the company situation, the company culture wasn't exactly aligned with what I really believed in and also what actually then eventually led to this particular book we're talking about. 
Um, and at the same time, I was always interested in the creative side and I was doing art on the side. I was doing, I was producing music. I'm still producing music and performing. And eventually for various reasons, um, also the company culture, I decided to quit. And a friend of mine who had been doing a startup related to AI and creativity for many, many years, and he's been kind of pushing me for a long time and say, Hey, Max, don't you want to join? Don't you want to join? And eventually at that point, I thought, okay, now is finally the time. Um, and I said yes to him. And that's kind of how I got into the whole AI and creativity field. And I've been in that for, well, really actively full time for about a year now. But I've been slightly in and out of the field for, let's say, two, three years. Mm. And that's uh, fascinating. And I think it's really important to note there that you, you're you producing and performing music. So you are being creative. You've written a book. So uh, And we'll come to the AI and creativity uh, specifically in a minute. But uh, we're, rec- so we're recording this in lockdown in uh, yep. April, end of April 2020. And the world changes very fast in AI research. But um, let's just kind of try and give a snapshot right now, uh, because AI is such a broad term, right? So Absolutely. what Right now, uh, what what is AI capable of doing, and what is it not capable of doing? In uh, you know specifically for writing or creativity. Yeah. That's a very good question. Like as you said, AI is such a broad term and it's thrown around a lot. Um, probably the most capable term, or what people usually mean when they talk about AI, is machine learning or deep learning. Um, and essentially, what that is. It's really just a fancy way of doing statistical analysis. So while it is extremely powerful, at the core of it is really just statistical analysis, which is actually interesting if you think about it from a creative point of view, because yes, these algorithms can find insights in massive amounts of data and find interesting averages in a way. But as creatives, what we're really looking for are outliers of the data. And I think that's what will still make it like creativity, uh, human for a very, very long time. What AI can really do is help us in that, but we're still the curators and we're still eventually the people who decide what is art and what is not. So, I mean, in terms of writing, you hear a lot in the media, but also as a researcher in the field, I want to warn everyone a little bit. What you see in the media and what's actually going on are two very, very different sides of it. There's a lot of hype and often what gets out is very pushed and polished by the marketing departments. So a lot of these things we hear about um, sound incredibly powerful and very nice and like AI writing entire scripts or screenplays and novels even. But... I'm very, very, very skeptical having worked in that field and still working in the field. Um, Essentially, AI currently in terms of writing is very good at highly structured language and also very, very short-term context. So when I worked on the business side of things and really working on this AI for um, business analysts and looking at news data, what we found is that the more structured the language is, the easier a time AI has at actually getting information out of that. For example, legal texts are very, very easy for an AI to understand because it follows very strict patterns and there's very clear rules. When we were looking at Twitter data, on the other hand, it was basically impossible to apply the same methods. And even though you as a human might think, oh, for me, a tweet is much easier to understand than a legal text, but it's again, this pattern spotting and this statistical analysis, there's much less patterns in Twitter data. Um, There's a lot more typos, there's a lot more variations, language changes constantly. So that's actually very, very hard for AI to do, even at such a short range. And as we go to longer and longer ranges of text, it becomes almost impossible. And what I like to think of AI in the creative fields, it's really a tool for exploration. So I like to think of the example of Photoshop. When Photoshop or similar graphic design tools came around, people were worried that graphic designers are going to lose their jobs. But the exact opposite happened, really. Those people who embraced those new tools, they could automate a lot of tedious tasks and allow themselves to explore the space of possible designs much, much faster. And you can think of similar kind of spaces of potential in every field you're doing. So in writing, for example, you think of all the books that could be written basically all the combinations of letters or words or whatever 
minimum sort of element you're looking at. And essentially what we're doing as writers all the time is wandering through the space of all possibilities. And we're narrowing it down and trying to find, okay, what's the direction I want to take? Where do I want to go? And I think AI can help us navigate that space much faster. But in the end, it's still us deciding on the direction we want to go in. And in the end, deciding on what is art and what is good writing. So actually one interesting example where I saw someone actively using AI in a more artistic side of writing, um, just before the whole world shut down at the beginning of March, I was actually in Montreal leading um, this AI art lab organized by Mutec Montreal. So Mutec is one of the world's leading festivals for digital art and electronic music. And they were organizing this 10-day workshop where they invited 15 international artists. And I was the technical facilitator of that workshop. And one of the artists, Lucas La Rochelle, uh, based in Montreal, he many years ago started a project he called Queering the Map. So it's essentially an interactive website where you can go and leave stories anonymously on a map, on a global map and really just any kind of queer story like people sharing oh i had my first kiss in that place or just random things very short ones also longer ones so he's been running that for a long time and it's become very popular in the queer community and he now has over sixty thousand, i think of those submissions and what he did with the ai was recently he trained a system on all those different submissions and had a system that could generate new ones of these now most of them are complete gibberish, but he just generated a lot of them and then curated them himself and uh, combined them with very interesting artworks, actually street view images, but also regenerated by AI. So it came became this very, very surreal queer stories with these dreamy images in the background. And he turned it into live performance where one of these appears on the screen. And he reads it out and he has a friend of his perform live music on top of that. So I think that's a very, very interesting example. But again, there was a lot of human curation in the process. And also it's very, very short. And the shortcomings of the AI are actually very deliberate. So they're almost part of the performance. Um, the fact that those stories that come out of it are not very realistic or that they're slightly off this kind of uncanny valley where you're not sure if it's human or machine that really lends to the artistic performance. But I think what we see a lot with these kind of systems, um, a lot of them work very, very well in 70% of the cases. And that's good for a researcher. The thing that actually gets out to the public is just, okay, AI made this and now, I don't know, all authors are going to be replaced with this thing. Um, but we're far, far away from actually having these more complex systems become come to a level where they're commercially stable enough that they can actually replace a creative human. And I actually don't think we're going to come there anytime soon. So creativity is really about connecting distant dots. And what we have now as AI is what we call narrow AI. So it's very, very good in very specific areas. Um, and there we can really make use of AI and help us in those specific areas. But it's going to be up to us to make the more distant connections and find a meaning that connects all those different things and really make the final artwork, essentially, make the final writing, make the final whatever we're working on. Um, so that's how I see the future of creativity and art in general. Now, I think there's a lot of um, much more, well, exactly kind of narrow application where we can really use AI. Now, I've also not been looking into this particular space, the language side of it, uh, too much recently. So I'm just going to make some things up maybe. Mm. But like one thing, I mean, I just finished editing my book and one thing I used all the time was a thesaurus, right? And I could imagine easily a much, much smarter AI thesaurus because, again, it's the statistical analysis parts. You can train it on particular data sets. For example, I could train one of my thesauruses on your particular writing. So if I have a sentence and I'm, I want to change a word, I can ask, okay, what is a statistically likely or what are other statistically likely words in that context? But I can also ask, okay, what are other statistically likely words in that context in the writing of Joanna Penn, for example? So that could be a very interesting thing where some kind of human element and this interaction with the AI comes in to 
again, use the AI as a tool. Mm, I think also maybe, I don't know if someone's actually looked at it, but one area of research is keyword or key phrase extraction from longer documents. And I think in a research process, this would be incredibly powerful and valuable. I mean, as a writer, so often during your research, you have tons and tons of text to read. If you could have a system highlight in advance the key phrases, that would probably help you a lot. And I think that's very, very doable and very well within reach if just someone puts some time and money behind this. Um, Also, I guess, I think Amazon, you probably know better, um, but Kindle, they actually know which passages are highlighted by readers, right? That's a thing. Mm -hmm, Yeah. So I could totally see a system trained on figuring out in your draft which um, passages are very likely to be highlighted by future readers. And that could then give you a sense of, okay, where can I improve? Um, But maybe you probably don't want every sentence to be the highlighted one because you also need the connecting material. So again, it's a bit of human curation in the process, but you can use AI as a tool to help you in that process. Mm. Sorry, that was a long, long answer. No, no, it's great. I let, you, I let you run there because I was writing lots of notes, um, but we're going to have to circle back on a few of those things. Sure. <laughs> so uh, loads of great stuff there. So I want to first come back on that queer story map mm-hmm. because I completely agree with you. I don't think we're going to be replaced by some yeah. human-like AI that's going to do what we do. But the tool is what what that guy did there was take lots of people's little stories and then use AI to do this curation and then create something new. And what you what is and then you also mentioned the AI thesaurus, which could be trained, say, on the writing of Joanna Penn. This is the issue for me because, as you mm. as we know, deep learning has to be trained on a data set. Yeah. And I have two different opposite views on this, which is one, I desperately, desperately want some of these writing AIs to be trained on a complete data set of all books because mm. at the moment they're all trained on dead white guys writing over yep. 100 years ago and we're not getting any of the um, modern voices, different voices, different genders, different races, etc. But the other side says, well, what about copyright? And mm. so the question here is, that guy who created the the queer story map stuff, if that was turned into a book, where is the copyright for AI? Does it for that generated work? Is it with him? Is it with the person who created the AI tool? What about the people who wrote the original works? And the same with your AI thesaurus idea. What happens if a big publisher uses their data set of books that they have licensed to train an AI? Do those authors get any um, anything? So at the moment, there is no, uh, well, there's been one case, right, in China of uh, copyright assigned to an AI for a nonfiction journalism piece. But um, how do we deal with this copyright idea uh, and also the training idea? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And I'm not sure if I'm going to have a good answer for it, actually. Well, nobody does. It's just your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, first of all, what should be said is like one thing you point out is very, very important, very true. The way those models are trained depends extremely on the data they're trained on. And there's huge biases baked into these models because of that. Now, actually, in the AI art community, this is one of the big focuses which people are really trying to stress. Because as artists, one of the things we always do in the art community is actually break the models on purpose. So we try and push those commercially available models sometimes or models we trained or made ourselves, but then try and put them to their breaking point or beyond. And that's where the interesting art happens. And a lot of this is really focused on this um, bias issue and really just making it so extreme that everyone becomes aware of it and also, yeah, just making art in the process. Um, Now, the copyright issue, that's much, much more tricky. Um, I don't know, like a traditional thesaurus, someone put that together as well, right? And they were inspired by some writing before them. Um, They looked at traditional texts to come up with that. I don't know how it's actually done in practice, but I'm sure there is this kind of process happening somehow. So I don't know how you could argue that a system that is trained on exactly the same kinds of texts should suddenly have different copyright issues than, I mean, ultimately this language 
is out there in the public domain, I'd say, because it's not. But well, but that's specifically mm. the stuff. Let's take the example of the guy with the queer map, yeah. where lie uh, people who are alive wrote stuff, mm. and that is their copyright. And he fed it into a model and created something new from that. And he might not have made any money, but. If he could, he could put a book together. Where are the rights for the people who created that original stuff? And again, there are, there is no law on this at the moment, mm. but I'm trying to, th- I mean, one of my ideas is that there is some kind of blockchain uh, management of books so that there's some kind of micro payment assigned to the books that are read into a model. So if an, or if a publisher say read in, uh, a million books, uh, a, a million books are assigned some kind of micro payment. And then if the model use, you know, whatever the model uses a bit like yeah. the page read idea with these subscription services, um, there would be some kind of tracking that way because otherwise i i do see that people's work will get fed into these models and you're right we all feed things into our brains and we're not yeah. i'm not giving stephen king any money for some of the stuff he put in my brain but that i'm a human and the amount of stuff i can read in is very small <laughs> so i think it's this bigger picture about this is going to happen this is happening this is not out of copyright work. Mm. Um, so what do we, what do we do with that? What what do people in the artistic community want? Do you think? I think the boundary there is very very difficult because everything is inspired by something else. Like if you put together a book, it's built on other books. You're reading a lot of other books, as you said. It might you might not be able to read as many different books, but at the same time, you probably synthesize them in a much more well. Because you don't ingest so many books, each of those actually probably influences your writing much more than, say, an AI that's trained on the works of hundreds of thousands of people, um, which really then just is an average of all those different things. Same with, say, painters um, or any graphical artists. They were inspired by other works, sometimes very, very obviously. Now, is there new work if it's different enough, a copyright infringement? I think it's a very, very difficult topic. Um, I know Seth Godin actually very recently talked about that on his podcast as well. I know he's very actually anti-copyright in a way because he really believes, I'm just paraphrasing him the way I remember, so <laughs> don't quote me on that, but he believes that we should sort of, the copyright should just be there to actually incentivize creatives it should not be any more restrictive than it needs to be to do that a lot of people would still do their work if there wasn't any copyright those people who submitted their um, stories to this querying the map project they would have still submitted them um, if they knew what would happen with them at least 95 percent of the people probably would have some of them might have contributed even more because they're happy to contribute to this bigger thing what's then built on it, top of it now i don't really know if that answers your question but it's just some mm. thoughts around this but as you say like it's a very difficult issue and i think it's going to be very tricky because it's just such a sliding gray zone in between um mm, yeah, no, I, it's, I, it's I very agree. difficult i agree i think uh, i really think the first thing that needs to happen is that publishers need to add a clause to contracts that say mm. we may use this in a model at some point right. and you no. you a part of my license is that i'm licensing your book to be used in no. some kind of model because i just think it's inevitable let's move back to the keyword uh, and key phrase extraction tool that you mentioned, which um, uh, I as something I've always thought. To me, the book itself is metadata. And if you had a combination of your AI thesaurus plus a AI keyword extraction tool, then you could, well, you the AI tool could read in my book Desecration, for example, and it could tell from the writing where that book should fit in the ecosystem. And it should aid discoverability. And at the moment, we have to, when we publish, choose seven keywords and we have Mm. to choose some categories. And it's still this, we have to decide where the book fits in the ecosystem. But actually, I think there's much more interesting stuff that could be done with this, uh, a combination of the tools that you suggest. So um, Mm. why why do you think this, do you think maybe Amazon's doing something like this already? Or do you think this is a long way off? That's a very good question. I've not really thought about that. Um, I'm sure Amazon is using 
that data they have through Kindle to at least do research. I don't know if they're using it in practice yet, but Amazon has one of the largest AI research teams in the world. And I'm very, very sure that they're actively working on those kind of things. Um, one thing you mentioned, so one of the things where AI is extremely good at right now even is similarity comparisons between different types of data. For example, like um, the tag suggestion and photos on Facebook, very accurate. And that's really just similarity comparisons of images. Hey, I know this face. I think this face is the same. So I suggest you tag that person. Um, in some of my work before, I was doing similar things with text. So we used, for example, a news article, and we could then look for similar news articles. And you could do the same with longer texts even, either by breaking them down and looking for similar paragraphs or using some slightly other techniques and doing it really at the book level. But I think that's really what you said is actually very interesting because then you can look, okay, what are clusters of similar books? Or you could say, hey, here is my draft. Show me the five most similar books, which are above a certain I don't know, success ratio. So you could see what are the most similar books which have been successful in the market. And then you could learn all sorts of things through that. For example, what Amazon keywords did they use or how did they do their marketing campaign or whatever. So I think that's a very interesting direction, but I've got no idea if anyone's actively looking into that. Mm. I know several uh, companies that I've talked to privately are doing kind of his comparison books that have similar, uh, you know, re um, keywords in the reviews mm. because reviews can be pulled off Amazon yep. itself and use textual analysis on. But I've tested yep. some of them and none of them I felt like, well, I could do mm. that quicker myself in about five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think it's funny because I think there's a long way to go as well. But I've literally been saying like the book as metadata for mm. probably – eight years now. <laughs> and I feel, uh, I feel quite frustrated sometimes because there's so much potential in this. And yet the clearly the author and book community is just not financially as viable as, and, or as, let's say as important yeah. as things like medical research. <laughs> so fair enough. Well, I guess it also depends who are the players in the field who are interested in that. I think the only one who could actually do it and has the data and the money to put behind it would probably be Amazon. So yeah, exactly. I guess if anyone's <laughs> doing it, it's probably them. One thing you mentioned is that the um, review analysis was based on keywords. So one of the key things of more modern AI, so really deep learning and machine learning is that we can step away from just keyword matching. That's one of the key advantages. So we really start looking at context and actually understanding meaning of longer phrases in a way. So it's not pure keyword matching, it's actually matching of meaning. Because AI understands, um, if I paraphrase a sentence in using completely different words, but I feed that into a well-trained model, the model will still understand that they're almost the same sentence, even if they have zero word overlap. So I think that's one of the big things we're moving towards and which is quite important to distinguish between this more traditional keyword matching approach and more modern AI and deep learning. Mm. Now, um, as we mentioned, we're recording this during the lockdown. Um, my feeling is that this whole situation is going to accelerate the development of AI, particularly also with automation, robotics, because uh, people yeah. get sick. <laughs> um, and also, you know, we've seen AI power, AI powered in inverted commas, companies can make more money with fewer people. Now, the ethics of this are a different matter. <laughs> but um, what do you think the impact of this pandemic is going to be on the AI community and, and the development and speed? I think I do agree with you that um, it will definitely have a positive impact on AI and the use of automation. But I actually see that as a very positive thing. And I think a lot more people should see it the same way. I think now a lot of us are forced into this well, forced time off, essentially. And one thing that probably becomes apparent for quite a lot of people is that a lot of the time we're just performing this busyness. So we're actually trying to compete with the machines at being busy. But no matter how much time you put into it, and no matter how hard you work, you're not going to out-busy the machines. So I think people who are realizing that now and shifting their focus on the more human skills is really this connecting distant dots, focusing on creativity, and also focusing on empathy and using the time freed up by AI tools and other automation tools to really 
invest in those ideas, they will really benefit in the future. So I actually think that using these tools more will really allow us to become more human and actually do much, much greater things. Now, as you said, there's probably a lot of ethical issues there as well. And in the short term, there will be a lot of disruptions. But I think it's a very good time for people to just step back and reflect where in their lives they could be easily replaced by machines. Essentially, where do they focus on creativity? And where is it more things that can be written down and well, explained as rules, which is very, something that's very easy to feed into an AI. So I like to use the comparison of classical music to improvisational jazz. Classical music is very, very difficult, but it follows very clear patterns. And I'm actively working on AI music and in that space. And most of the experiments are done on classical music, just because it's very easy to figure out these patterns. It's, again, the same as the legal texts are much easier than the tweets. Um, whereas improvisational jazz is such a human element and you have to constantly live with uncertainty and just this, yeah, it's a completely different way of approaching things. So I encourage people to think in their own lives or in their work, where do you do the equivalent of classical music and where do you play the equivalent of improvisational jazz and maybe focus on the latter? It doesn't mean that classical music is easy to do. It'll just mean it might be less valuable as a skill in the future. Oh, nice. I like that. <laughs> classical versus jazz. I'm now standing here thinking, okay, what, what is left in my life that is, uh, <laughs> and it, it's so funny though, because even, uh, so our discussion, so, um, you know, even though you, you know, you're German, you have a tiny accent, tiny, tiny. I have an English accent. And still the, um, when I use an AI transcription for this interview, yep. it will struggle because it, and it does so much better with American voices. If, you know, Know, if it's two mm. Americans, it gets yep. it almost perfect. And a, a Brit and a German, it, yep. it will be, it, it will have difficulties. And it's so funny because I would love to not even have to check the transcription. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't have to do that at this point, but I will have to. But that to me is classical work. It is not yep. classical music type work in that way, yep. in your metaphor, because I shouldn't have to even check the transcription at this point, but I will. <laughs> so, yep. so that's but again, an example think of. About mm, Sorry, just a couple of years ago, you would have still had to sit down and actually transcribe that yourself, right? Yes. So we've already moved a good step ahead and probably in, in a couple of years, we'll be there where you can pretty much trust those systems to do a good job. Yes, exactly. So, okay, so you mentioned there the forced time off, which brings us nicely yep. to your book, Time Off, <laughs> which um, is really suggesting that I could achieve more by doing less. And you talk about this thing called a rest ethic. Mm. Now, as a workaholic, I need your help. <laughs> so um, tell us a bit more about what you mean by rest ethic and yeah. uh, and what the book is about. So maybe actually the first part to start is, is actually at the time off. Um, and you said by doing less. And yes, that is part of it, but it's not necessarily the only part of it. So when we talk about time off, we don't just mean relaxation or sitting on a beach, sipping a cocktail. There's much more to time off. And you might describe yourself as a workaholic, but actually you might already be pretty good at practicing time off and have a very good rest ethic. So one of the examples in the book is Derek Sivers, um, writer, entrepreneur, musician, all sorts of things. And he said something along the lines that basically he optimized his life for creating and learning. And he actually says the word workaholic would apply to him, but it's all play, not work. And I think that's really the key idea. So what's important to realize and what's really the core of the book is this idea that busy does not mean productive. And it comes back to the whole AI idea as well. Busyness is easy to automate. It's not very valuable. Often it's actually counterproductive, especially in the creative fields. And more and more what's left for us, what's useful and what's valuable is this creative aspect. So really accepting that busyness is not productivity is really, really a key focus. And another key concept of the book is we actually borrowed it from Aristotle. Uh, he had this idea of noble leisure. And a lot of work can actually even fall under noble leisure. Basically, it's defined as meaningful tasks. And contrary, actually, a lot of what people think they're doing their leisure, I don't know, sitting on their phone, just scanning down their Facebook feed, 
is probably not noble leisure. It doesn't fill their life with meaning. So you say you're a workaholic, but I'd actually say probably a lot of the work you do is noble leisure in this way we define it. And that's really where your rest ethic comes in. It's this idea of recognizing, it's basically becoming conscious of how you invest your time. And Yes, we all have a work ethic and we want to get stuff done. But just like you need to complement an in-breath with an out-breath to be sustainable and healthy and balanced, you also need to complement your work ethic with a rest ethic. And especially on the creative side. So rest ethic is really the incubation, the stepping away, the seeing the bigger picture, the retreating in solitude and doing reflection, those sort of things, they fall under rest ethic. And especially I think in times like now, people are forced away from the busyness. And a lot of people are struggling for various reasons. A, probably being removed from the busyness just reveals this void in their life and this absence of meaning and meaningful leisure and hobbies that they so far just plastered over with busyness all the time. But now a lot of people are realizing that investing in meaningful tasks and meaningful hobbies is very valuable. Um, also, cycling through different types of work can actually be time off. I'm sure you're not working on the same thing. I mean, you've got your podcast, you've got your writing, you've got different types of writing. Sometimes you're in the editing mode of one project. Sometimes you're in the writing mode for some other. Um, Soren Kierkegaard had this idea of mental crop rotation. So every farmer knows that you should not plant the same crop every single year in the same field. And Kierkegaard essentially took the same idea to his working habits and he rotated the work he was doing. So his mental soil could essentially become more fertile again. And what I really like about this analogy is if you do crop rotation right, one type of um uh, one type of stuff you plant in your fields actually fertilizes the ground for the next crop you plant. And the same really happens if you do this mental crop rotation. If you step back from one thing to either engage in true leisure, I don't know, go for a walk, cook something, travel, um, or if you engage in other projects, it really fertilizes your mental ground, your mental soil for all the other things you're working on. And I know you're really into traveling. Um, some things we're talking in the book about as well is this idea of the traveler's eye. So when you go to a new country, everything is amazing. And like even going to the supermarket is an adventure and you see these creative things everywhere and you get new ideas and inspirations from everything. If you can keep this traveler's eye and really time off and reflecting and taking a step back helps you preserve that, even if you're not traveling, that's such a powerful thing for any creative. And it's also very closely related to watching kids at play. They have this amazing playground mentality where everything is possible. And sure, you still need to do the serious work and actually sit down and verify all those crazy ideas. But a lot of people don't even have the silly ideas in the first place or are not willing to talk about those silly ideas or admit them. So I think all these things need this aspect of time off to nurture. And it's really difficult sometimes to step away from work and just relax or guilt-free work on something else, work on a passion project. But you have to realize, and that's really where the rest ethic part comes in, that doing this does not hinder your main work. It will ultimately feed back into it and make it much, much more valuable. And in the future, I think we need to focus much, much more on quality than on quantity. Because again, AI is going to do the quantity and automation is going to do the quantity. What's left to us is being creative and being human and focusing on human connections, understanding each other and really doing quality work for each other. Mm. And yeah, I mean, I do walk a lot and I do sleep a lot. So <laughs> I'm going to say that involves my rest ethic. But it's interesting, like yep. this morning on my walk, I took my um, little dictation Sony thing mm. and I did like half an hour of dictation of just loads of things I've been thinking about. And, and I have to get away from my desk in order to think that bigger picture. So that kind of combines, like you say, that uh, getting away, but and also thinking. And I agree with you. I think this time of pandemic has made people really face up to what am I doing? And I mean, I have, yeah. I've had, and I'm, I've got a great 
life and a great job, but I'm, I still feel like there's lots of things that I shouldn't be doing <laughs> and things I want to change coming out of this time, uh, which is really interesting. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and the book is beautiful. It's really gorgeous. Thank you. Tell us about the, you know, the process of the book and, and why did you make it so be- beautiful? <laughs> so the process is actually quite interesting. Um, if you would have told me two years ago that I would be writing a book, um, I would have probably told you you're crazy. So I never had the idea of, well, writing really until, well, it was really when I was doing AI research in that first startup out of my PhD. And during my PhD, I had this amazing and I really, I'm really, really grateful to my supervisors at Imperial College in London, who really allowed me complete hands-off approach. Basically, I had three years to do my PhD. At the end, there was a thesis deadline. And what I did with the time in between was completely up to me. I could disappear to other countries for weeks on end without actually asking anyone for question or permission. Um, and I really made a lot of use of that freedom. I did a lot of side projects, engaged in a lot of hobbies, did a lot of traveling, um, started a company at the time as well, actually, um, and all these different things. And then being in that startup, suddenly I became busier and busier and also less and less productive. And again, it was travel. I was away from my actual work when it really hit me one day that, hey, okay, something's wrong. I never felt less busy. And at the same time, less productive. And just to help myself understand what's actually going on, I started writing and I started posting articles on Medium. And somehow people liked my writing and started writing about all sorts of other topics, including AI. And my now co-author, he through some random chance saw one of my articles on AI and creativity. And he then looked through my other writing, one of which, one of those articles was about the idea of time off and everything that the book is now about. And at the time, he was doing a podcast on the idea of time off. So he reached out to me and asked me if I want to be on the podcast. And from there on, we slowly became friends, uh, kept chatting. And again, through various random coincidences, I mentioned one day by chance that "Mm, maybe one day I do want to write a book. And a couple of months later, I had this email in my inbox. Hey, do you want to write this book together? And that's how the whole thing started. And the interesting thing is actually until today, we have never met in person. So I live in Tokyo. He lives in Austin, Texas. And the whole thing was remote collaboration. So I think that's, again, a really amazing kind of sign for the future of collaboration and technology can allow us to do these amazing things if we use it on our terms and if we use it right. Yes, it can be a huge distraction and completely ruin your time off. But if you use it in the right way, it can allow you to do this while co-offering a book without ever meeting in person. Um, Actually, also, you mentioned the book is beautiful, and that's largely thanks to the amazing illustrator working with us on the book, as well as our amazing designer, who actually makes the whole thing come together. But the illustrator story is also very interesting. So very early on in the process, we decided, yeah, we do want to have illustrations because the book is... So it's basically a bunch of deep dives on different topics like creativity, sleep, reflection, solitude. Um, And within those deep dives, there's profiles of around 50 people, historic and present, who use these different ideas or aspects of time off and really were successful by implementing it in their own way. And because of the profiles, we thought very early on, we would really like to have illustrations of those people in the book. So both my co-author, John, and I went on Instagram and actually just posted a story. Hey, does anyone know good illustrators who might be willing to work with us on this book? And some person that I don't know personally, she's just following me on Instagram, reached out to me. Hey, there's an amazing illustrator based in Tokyo called Maria Suzuki. Um, Maria, our illustrator, also didn't know that person. So it's really just some third person who follows both of us by chance. And she connected us. And it turns out actually, Maria and I have a very close group of common friends but it was this random stranger on the internet that connected us and now maria is part of the core team of time off and doing those beautiful beautiful illustrations and really completely shaping the brand image of the book and just making it absolutely gorgeous to look at and again it was all this kind of random chance online people coming together um that made it all happen 
It's fantastic. And and I love that. And I think just putting yourself out there and as you say, asking community, that's exactly what has led to this book. So tell us where people can find you and the book and everything you do online. So the book is going to be out on May 25th um, and it's going to be well, everywhere you can, where you usually get your books. You can also find us online at timeoffbook.com. And if you're more interested in my personal stuff, like from my articles to my music, to my art, um, it's maxfrenzel.com. And I'm also on Instagram. That's more the personal stuff. Like if you're interested in me baking bread or growing mushrooms or making music, that's mffrenzel at, on Instagram. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Max. That was great. Thanks for having me. So I hope you found the interview with Max interesting. And personally, I need to re-listen to that time off segment again. I have never, I, I don't think I've ever been this busy. I mean, to be honest, lockdown has been the busiest I've ever been because I haven't had my breaks, my regular breaks away. I haven't even been able to do really long walks. So I feel like I've just been working like really hard since March, beginning of March, really, with barely a day off. And it is not sustainable. And uh, my husband calls me the little machine, but this machine is pretty broken and so it was good to, I, I interviewed Max a couple of months ago now, I've done a lot in advance, but I need to take that advice on board. <laughs> Honest, but uh, says the workaholic. We'll see if that actually happens. <laughs> and to circle back to Max's question, where in your life are you playing classical and where are you playing jazz? And how could you do a kind of mental crop rotation in your life to remain sustainably creative for the long term? Good questions from today's show. So next week, I'm talking about how to self-edit your novel with Chris Spizak. And I'll also have my edits back on Map of the Impossible. So it's good timing and back to craft next week. So happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.